Well, I'm wondering this morning if you are a pet peeve person. And by that I mean, do you have a list of pet peeves? I, I, I know I do, and, and my latest pet peeve has to do with Facebook, and it's all those ads that are on there. I mean, like, why are there ads on Facebook? I thought Mark Zuckerberg designed this for my pleasure. Not for monetary gain, but, you know, but all these ads on there. And so <clears throat> when I see these ads and I, just, I get annoyed, I, I found out, and, and I'm grateful for this, that there's a, a drop-down thing you can click, and it hides the ad, you know? feel like I've accomplished something if I get rid of an ad on my Facebook feed. And, and then when you <clears throat> click on that, um, get rid of this ad thing, then it asks you why. Why do you want to get rid of this? And one of the options is, it's not relevant. And I'm like, yep, that's right, it's not relevant. Click, and it goes away. And I'm, I never see it again. And I'm quite pleased by that. I think some people have that mindset about the church. It's like, man, church just isn't really relevant to me. So click, and church disappears. <clears throat> about, I think, six years ago now, uh, I was ending my 10-year pastorate in a traditional pastor's role at my church. And uh, I just felt like I needed a break, and so I, I resigned. And I uh, spent a year trying to figure out what to do next. I was 59 years old. <laughs> and I quickly discovered that no church wants a 59-year-old pastor. You over the hill. They want somebody young. And I, I figured that out pretty quick. And at that point in my life, I was... I was burned out, I was worn out, and I was all used up. But I discovered that if the church didn't need me, I still needed the church. Now, maybe they needed me, but it felt like they didn't. But I still needed the church. In fact, I was so moved by that thought, that discovery, that even if the church didn't need me, or I felt like they didn't, I still need the church. I put that up there on Facebook, you know, of course. <laughs> Got my whole life on Facebook. Just stuck it up there. And I found that during that, especially during that point in my life, that um, the church was so helpful to me. It kept me connected with God. It, connect, it connected me with other people. Uh, the church gave me hope. The church gave me direction. And the church was relevant to me. And I appreciated that so very much. There are a lot of people today who drop out from church. They say, I, 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 don't, I don't need the church. I had, a, I had a pastor friend that took a church of about 50 or 60 people. And in four or five years, that church grew to about 400 500 people, something like that. I mean, it just did a great job. And I got, I got word that he resigned his church. And so I'm like, so what church did he go to? And the answer I got was, he didn't go to any church. And I'm like, where is he going to church? 
And I got the word was, he's not going to church. He just checked out. He just, he just dropped out of church. And I was, I was so surprised at that. I think it's all about being relevant. And again, this morning on, on my Facebook feed, this, you can put in your notes, if you're taking notes, Facebook sermon. Just write it down. So, but, but one of the things I like to do, especially with the time change now, I have a lot of pastor friends on Facebook. And so because of the time change, it's early enough here that in the morning, I can, I can scroll, on Sunday morning, I can scroll through my Facebook feed and I can see my pastor friends that do Facebook Live. And I can watch a little, just a little bit of their worship service and see how it's going at their church and, you know, what kind of music they're singing and things like that. And so I did that this, just this morning. And I stopped because I'm watching this one, this one church service and there are four old people across the front. Now, I like old people because I are one. Again, uh, that's my tribe. I'm not, I'm not making fun of old people. But there are four old people across the front. They're holding a hymnal and they're singing hymns. And I like hymns. Please don't think I'm throwing any church or anything. No hymns. I'm not throwing anything under the bus. But there, they, there were four old folk up front. God bless them. With their hymnal singing. And the camera's in the back. And I'm, and I'm watching this. And it's in their worship service. And there's one person sitting here. In the congregation, one person. I'm like, why is that? And I'm, I'm like, it must be that, that some folk have decided that the church isn't really relevant. And so I, I think as a, as, a, as a church, not just this church, but as the big church, capital C church, we need to figure out what a relevant church looks like. I mean, what in the world does it mean to be relevant? And what, what do we as a Birch Ridge community church, what do we need to do to be relevant? Um, the good news is that I've already ordered a fog machine for the stage. <laughs> Disco ball, going to come down from the ceiling. We're taking out the first three or four rows here. And we're going to have a hallelujah mosh pit right here. We're gonna be we're gonna be relevant, but you know I'm kidding, right? Okay, good. Uh, but but the it it begs the question: What does a relevant church look like? And so I want I want to start with this, and to me this is the logical place to start. I want to suggest to you that a, a, a relevant church remembers its birth story its birth story, how it was born, because it has some, there's something in here about DNA. You know, the DNA that's in us when we're born determines, to some extent at least, you know, what we become and what we ought to be doing, this DNA. And I'm thinking about the birth story of the church, this DNA that, that gives us the signal of what we ought to be like to be relevant. So, so let's, let's start with that. Now, even, even before we go down that road, I just want to hit the pause button. Back up for a minute. 
and ask a painfully obvious question. And the obvious question is this. What is the church? And, you know, if we just pass the microphone around, I think we would get several different answers, you know, but uh, we've got to figure out a good working definition of the church or else we're just going to spin our wheels and we'll not gain any, any traction. Well, the first place that the word church appears in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, is in Matthew 16, 18. And let's look at that right there on the screen. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, I use the New International Version. That's what that NIV in the bottom right corner stands for. That's my translation of choice. And in, in my, the version that I use, the word church is only used twice. Just twice. And both times in the Gospel of Matthew. But behind this English word that's translated as church is a, is a Greek word. It's really important. And you've probably heard this word before. But it's the word ecclesia. Ecclesia which simply means called out. Now, it makes a lot of sense when you read the Gospels and you see how Jesus got started. It says that Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee and he called out to these guys. And when he called out to them, he said, come and follow me. So this idea of being called out has to do with leaving the old behind and following Jesus into something brand new. And that's what's happening here in the Gospels when Jesus called his disciples. You come and you follow me. So they followed Jesus. And so clearly when Jesus went that way, they went that way. And when Jesus went that way, they went that way. Jesus went to that town, they went to that town. And they went together as a group of people that were called out. We have no record in the Gospels uh, story of a disciple who said, well, I think you guys go ahead, I'm going to go to this town. No, they, they, to be called out and to follow Jesus was to travel together. There is very clearly this idea of community. It's like, and I don't mean this in, in, in a bad way at all, but it's like they followed Jesus like a group of sheep following a shepherd. They were together. They were a group. There were no lone sheep who kind of did their own thing. They, they, were, they went together. So they were called out of their solitary lives to be in community, to, to experience life together. They were on a journey together when they responded positively to the call of Jesus Christ. So now here's my working definition of the church. It's this that the church is the assembled group of believers who are on a journey together 
as they follow Christ. Let me, I'll say it one more time. That the church is the assembled group of believers who are on a journey together as they follow Christ. Now, I know we have different denominations. We have different opinions. We have different personalities. We have different worship styles. But we're still united together in Christ. Because we're all following the one who called us out from our solitary lives and called us into community. And so we are a people together on a journey. And you can say that in a broad sense, if you're talking about the church with a capital C, this church, that church, across town, Florida, Africa, you can say, say it like uh, in a broad sense, but you can also say it in a very uh, localized sense here in Birchridge. We are people in a journey together. We are a community of believers who are following Jesus Christ. All right, so that's, that's like kind of what I'm talking about when I'm using the, phrase, or the word church. But now let's talk specifically about the birth of the church. And most scholars and theologians, it seems, agree that the birth of the church is found in Acts chapter 2. And so I want to read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Acts 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in their own language. Now, I, I hope that you were at least kind of intrigued about the first line in verse 1 there, when it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And I hope that you were at least intrigued enough, or at least, let's say, awake enough to ask yourself this question, why? You know, when you read Scripture, ask why all the time. That's how you learn. And so you read this, and you got this, this group of believers and it says they were all together in one place, and instantly, I'm like, why? Why, why, are, they, why are they together in that one place? And, the, and to get the answer to that question, you have to go back to chapter 1. And if you look at verses 4 to 8 in Acts 1, you see why they were all together in that one place. Let me read now Acts 1, 4 to 8. On one occasion, while he, Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So now you know why they were all together in that one place. Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem and sit there and wait. So they're all there in that place in obedience to what Jesus has told them to do, this group of believers being obedient to God. And so they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And the text says they'll be baptized, or maybe another way to say it is they'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there they were, they're meeting together, and as promised by Jesus, the Holy Spirit came, and some really mighty, strange things happened. Maybe you caught it when I read Acts chapter 2 a moment ago. There's wind, there's fire, and they're speaking in other tongues, and that's just pretty weird stuff. But let's, let's go back to Acts 2. Let me read verses 2 to 4 again. And then we're going we're gonna to talk about those signs that you see there. So Acts 2, 2 to 4. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So, there they are, and these weird things happen, and I'm like, wow, that's a whole lot of weirdness. How do we explain that? And I discovered that the way we explain it is we begin to think about the Old Testament. And in those stories where God showed up, and the theological word for a story where God shows up is the word theophany. God appears in the story. That's a theophany. And scholars have noticed that when God appears in the Old Testament, there's usually signs that appear so that people know for sure God has shown up. They're called the signs of the theophany. So, so there's no mistake that God has shown up. Think about, for example, when um, God came to the top of Mount Sinai. There was smoke, there was wind, there was fire. Uh, when Moses stood in front of the burning bush, there's this fire. And so it became this kind of sign that God was in the house. If there's smoke and wind or if there's and if there's fire and so that's what's happening here in acts chapter 2 god in the holy spirit showed up and god wanted everybody to know he was in the house and so he exhibited these signs of the theophany you know this fire and these these this wind thing and so everybody there 
I'm sure, knew when they saw this fire and felt this wind and the effects of the wind, their minds instantly went back to those stories in the Old Testament that they knew so well where God showed up and there was wind and fire. So they, they all knew, yep, God is in the house. But what about, what about this part here about, it talks about speaking in tongues. And the way I've come to understand that is that I remember that this happened uh, during the feast called Pentecost. And Pentecost was a, a must-attend event for the Jewish folk. And so you have people from all over the known world there at this time for the celebration of Pentecost. The population of Jerusalem swelled dramatically, and you know what that's like when fishing time arrives around here, right? Can't even drive through town. That's what they, what they tell me. It, that's, that's what it's like here in the text. When all of these weird things happened, you have all of these people that's assembled from all around the, the known world. And because you have these people from different parts of the known world, they speak different languages. And what's happening here is so important that God decided he's going to break down the language barrier so that these people that don't speak the language of the disciples, they can hear what's happening in their own language. It's that important. It's that critical for them to understand. Because that way, when they go back to the other reaches of the known world, they can tell everybody back home what they saw and what happened. And what's so critical, what's so important, it's the birth of the church. So that, at least in my own mind, that's how I understand this idea of tongues and, and why it was so critical to that, to that birth story. So there you have it. This is uh, the birth story uh, uh, of the church. But it all began because you had a group of Christ followers who were obedient to Christ, and they went to Jerusalem, and they waited as they were supposed to wait. Now, really, before this event, there really wasn't a church, technically a church, just a group of Christ followers who were on the way, if you will, to becoming a church. So that's, that's the story. That, that's the birth narrative of the church. But now we have to apply all that and ask the question, so what does all this tell us about being a relevant church? And, you know, so why is it important to even think about all of this? I have a couple of thoughts, and the first one is this. It's that our our birth story reminds us that the church is God's idea and not the idea of any person or persons. God thought this up. This was God's plan. I mean, this is why God in Christ said to the disciples that, hey, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to wait in that room. And they're waiting for the birth of the church. I mean, God had this all planned out. This is not man's plan. It wasn't that, the, that after Jesus 
died, rose again, and ascended to the Father. It wasn't that the, that the disciples got together and said, well, we're just 12, we're going to have to start a church growth campaign. Somebody better write a manual of discipline for us to follow. Got to outline all the rules. Uh, I mean, it wasn't, wasn't, like, wasn't like that at all. I'm saying it wasn't man's idea at all. God had it all planned out, and I'm saying the church was God's idea. I don't see any place at all in the Bible for there to be an alternative way for a Christ follower to go through life. I mean, I mean we, we were, the birth narrative here, we were called out from our solitary lives to be part of a community. The disciples, those people there in the upper room, we are called out of singleness of our own little universe to be people that join together to move forward through this thing called life Again, in community. And those well-meaning people who claim allegiance to Christ and say, I'll just do this all by myself. I just don't need the church. I think they're wrong. <laughs> I, I think they're wrong. The Bible is so clear that this is God's idea. We really do need each other. God's plan. The other thing I see here is that when you look closely at the story and think about the role of the Holy Spirit in this whole thing, I'm, I'm re reminded that the church is the church only when it's guided by the Holy Spirit. You know, we're, we're in this day and age where we think that we, we can just figure it all out. You know, this scientific age. We can, we can analyze and we can, we can uh, diagram and test and we can, we can get programs and we can follow manuals and we can, just, we can just do all this stuff by ourselves. And anytime a church begins to say, we're going to figure this out on our own. And we push God out of the picture. We start to become irrelevant, not relevant. And, and the reason I say that is you folk and, and folk outside the church, we're, we're used to, to dealing with people all, all of the time. And we're used to being told what to do by our boss or we, you know, all of that kind of thing. But we, we in the church, we need to understand that um, we need to be guided by the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I'm not smart enough to figure all this out. And when we come to church, and when people out here who don't know there's a God that loves them, when they show up in the church, they don't want a church full of know-it-alls that got it all figured out. They work with people like that, right? So anytime we think 
We're smart enough to figure it all out. We ought to get on our knees. I, I was preaching this same thing in the first service. And I felt convicted, and I, sa- I said this out loud. I, I said, you know what? I think I've let you down because I've not been encouraging you folk enough, maybe even not at all, I don't remember, to be praying for the church and the leadership team as you go through the pastoral search process. You know? And shame on me for that. But you are at a critical place in the life of this church where you've got to get the right leader up here, right? And you have a, you have a wonderful leadership team. You really do. You have a great leadership team. You have, you have smart people in leadership in this, in this community of believers. But guess what? We can't rely just on them to pick the right person We've got to have a supernatural inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit to help us get the right person. I mean, we need the Holy Spirit. Anytime a church, I'll say it again, starts to rely primarily on human engineering instead of the Holy Spirit, we start to become irrelevant because that's what the rest of the world does just rely on this i'll figure it out so there's this whole idea that we've got to be guided by the holy spirit and then just one more one more little quick thought and i'm done I've been saying this again and again since I stood up here a moment ago, but I want to just end on this thought from this look at the birth narrative of the church. I want to reemphasize again that the church was born in unity and community. And we really do need each other. I, I need you, and just maybe you, you need me, as scary as that might be to some of you. And you need the person on your left, and you need the person on your right. We need each other. We were called, again, out of our solitary existence to be called into community. Life together is what this is all about. And I really think, That in our culture and world today, people are longing, longing for genuine, deep community with other people. I believe that. And so when when we have a sense of community as a church, as a body of believers, and we rely upon each other, and, and we recognize we need each other, and we carry each other's burdens, and we love each other. And when somebody comes in through the doors that doesn't know that there's a God that loves them, and they walk into this place, and they feel that sense of community, guess what? 
all of a sudden, you've become the most relevant organization in town. Because it's what they're looking for. They're not, they're not used to a sense of unity. They're not used to a sense of community. And if we want to be relevant, we need to work harder on having a sense of unity, a sense of community, and get to know the name of the person you're sitting next to. And spend a little bit of time. Do you want, should I do introductions? <laughs> I'm still learning names, by the way. But get to know each other. Because we need each other. We've been called into community. Well, that's my first swing at this idea of how to be a relevant church. And again, I think it starts with that birth story, something about the DNA, something about the plan that God had for the church. And we've got to embrace that. Churches for us, not just for one person over there. Church is all about following and being obedient to the Holy Spirit. It's about being united together. May we work hard to be relevant based on our birth narrative. Let's stand together and let me pray. Father, forgive us for those times as a church when we've thought being narrative means having the coolest coffee shop in town or the coolest building in town, or the flashiest neon sign in town. Bring, bring us back to that reality that being relative is all about being who you want, wanted us to be and want us to be today. Help us, Father. We rely upon you and the power of your Holy Spirit to help us to be relevant to those who don't know that you love them. And so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.